man, Jay, what is up with rural European towns and pitchfork-wielding mobs? It's a long fictional tradition, Miles. You'd think they'd learn eventually. The peasants? It's not entirely their fault. At least, not all of them. How so? Well, take Vinzeldorf. Vinzeldorf? Ah, uh, you know, from Giant Size X-Men number one with Nightcrawler and... The pitchfork-wielding mob. Right. Now, you would think that they were just aggressively xenophobic, but it turns out they were actually being secretly manipulated by Mephisto. Uncool, Mephisto. Was he just, what, stoking general-purpose hatred? And providing the townspeople with objects at which to direct that hatred. For instance, he manipulated a local kid into pissing off someone who turned the kid into a big red demon. How'd that work out? Pretty badly for everyone involved. Nightcrawler tried to intervene, but- Is that why he was there in Giant Size? What? No, no, this was decades later. Wait, you mean he went- Back? Why would he do that? Oh, he was invited. For another mob? For the grand opening of the Nightcrawler Museum. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 215 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to Not Executioner's Song. We are going back to Excalibur. Wow, I'd, I'd forgotten that things ever happened in places other than, I guess, the eastern seaboard and the moon. Right? Well, I mean, you know, we just have our usual Excalibur members. We have Strife and Cable and Mr. Sinister and Apocalypse Wait and- a minute. No, it is totally just Excalibur. So pretty soon, Excalibur is going to start interacting a lot more with the other X stuff. And in fact, we're going to see the story justification for the beginnings of that in this episode's coverage. But for now, they're just off doing their own British thing. Right. And it's been, oh god, it has been a very long time since we've covered Excalibur. So maybe let's do a little bit of recap. Um, Go over who's on the team and what they've been up to. Excalibur, Britain's premier partially mutant superhero team, has gone through some changes during Alan Davis's big, amazing run. What stayed fairly consistent, though, is the team's lineup. We've still got four out of the five original members, Captain Britain and Megan, who, as you may recall, originated in the old British Captain Britain comics, and Nightcrawler and Shadowcat. And when Excalibur was formed, everybody thought the X-Men were still dead, hence them going off and being British. So we're missing one character from the original Excalibur team, and that is Rachel Summers, Phoenix, who was rendered comatose after her big fight with the Sorcerer Necrom in Excalibur number 50, and has since been taken off to the stars by the Phoenix Force to recover. And we have some new members. First off, we have Kylan, a British kid who grew up into a feline fantasy warrior in an alternate universe. He's joined the team. So has Cerise, an alien lady with rad tech and strange customs who will eventually be retconned to be Shi'ar. And then we have good old Farron, a young wizard jerk. Uh, Kind of. Mostly, he mopes about how the Phoenix Force should have been his, not Rachel's, so his main contribution to the team seems to be scowling. Yeah, his, his job right now is to meditate while floating at roughly waist level while scowling and periodically complaining. Now... 
Way back in Excalibur number 5, Captain Britain's old flame Courtney Ross was killed and replaced by her interdimensional doppelganger, the defeated fascist dictator Satire 9. And Satire 9 proceeded to make out with Captain Britain a lot, take Shadowcat under her um, very subtextually seductive wing, and effectively enslave everyone's least favorite mi- minor villain, Nigel Frobisher. Way back in, I don't know, lots of issues, Captain Britain and his sister Psylocke, remember, they're twins, their third sibling, Jamie Braddock, did terrible things, subsequently lost his mind, and learned to warp reality. He's still out there lurking in the wings. There's some other very, very old stuff that this that, that the next couple arcs are going to call back to, but I think we'll get to those when we get to them. And for now, let's just dive into the ghost of Braddock Manor. Excalibur number 55, and I love the cover here because the cover is just an interior fight page, and we have a little explanation as to why. This issue is so full of action and suspense, I'm afraid we have no room for a cover. We apologize for any inconvenience. But as interior pages as covers go, it's a pretty good one, and Psylocke and Captain Britain beating the hell out of each other looking badass. And... This story and the next one are continuations of Alan Davis's ongoing project to pick up and tie off all of the dangling plot threads he can find, and I I remain so damn impressed. Seriously, I can only imagine, like, Ed Pisker from X-Men Grand Design and Alan Davis getting together. They would just render our podcast unnecessary. Like, they would just explain everything. It would just streamline the Marvel Universe. I'm not against this as much as I would be sad about being out of a job, but we do indeed have Captain Britain and Psylocke sparring as the issue opens, and Alan Davis, I mean, I don't even know how much we can talk about how amazing Alan Davis's art is before we're just repeating the exact same wording, the exact same sentences, but it's amazing, his depiction of the two of them, their strength, their dexterity, their different fighting styles... Well, and how much fun they're having, because the two of them are sparring for fun, as becomes immediately very evident... And something we've talked about before with Alan Davis, but I am struck anew looking at, especially compared to the the cavalcade of grimness that has preceded this in our coverage, um, Alan Davis is just phenomenally good at depicting joy. He really is, yeah. And I think that's important for a character like Psylocke, who ever since she went through the Siege Perilous and got, then got transformed into her current form by the hand, like... She seemed very grim, very cold badass in sexy poses, and here we see that old Betsy again, personality-wise. Yeah. Well, we see personality, period. She's more than sexy, stiff poses. This this Psylocke, I think, has, has more personality and more visual expressiveness than about the last year and a half of Psylocke put together. Seriously. So, she's here in Britain hanging out with her bro because you may recall that she left the X-Mansion in X-Men number 12 while Cyclops was all creepy and watched her do so. And after they, you know, beat up on each other for a little while, the twins talk. And Captain Britain talks to her in a way he doesn't to very many people. He opens up to his sister that he trusts about his own feelings of inadequacy, his own concerns about being a man of science who's becoming more and more just a man of punching. And that is true. We always forget Captain Britain started out as a total science nerd and then just got bigger and beefier and punchier as time went on. Oh my god, you know what he is? What's that? He's... The nerd who gets socially and physically powerful and just becomes a huge asshole, or who always was a huge asshole and becomes a huge asshole with relative power, but who who still thinks of himself as the underdog. 
Well, and I'll give him credit. He's consistently tried to work on this as he's been recognizing it more and more. And Psylocke points out, hey, it's not entirely your fault. Our father was secretly a warrior from the mystical realm of Otherworld, that all the forces of Otherworld, including that jerk wizard Merlin, manipulated us into becoming what we are. So we kind of haven't really been able to be just, you know, us. It's a delightfully matter-of-fact conversation about one of the more bizarrely dysfunctional families in the Marvel Universe. I love it. But, you know, now Merlin's dead, and their older brother Jamie, who Brian had always felt he'd lived under the shadow of, is gone and certainly won't be coming back in this story arc or any other, so now the two of them can finally just be themselves as much as they've changed. They're doing well. Nightcrawler, significantly less so. Megan and Kitty come back from shopping to find Nightcrawler training very, very aggressively. He wants to make sure that he's prepared to continue as Excalibur's new leader. And he's also just been having a really rough time, both with Rachel leaving the team and with some recent misadventures in a Marvel Comics Presents story. Yeah, don't go into Marvel Comics Presents and team up with Wolverine listeners. It probably won't go well for you or him or no, anyone. No, he he did team up. Well, actually, that was in, in a, a Spider-Man book he te- when he teamed up with Spider-Man and the Punisher. But I have not read that story. That sounds interesting. Yeah, it's not really a team-up you'd see coming. No. One thing I also didn't see coming is that of all the fancy clothing bags that Kitty and Megan have from their shopping trip, one of them is labeled Glad Racks. I was wondering, is this a British thing? Because I only know that business as an American business, I think actually based out of Portland, that makes like sustainable menstrual products. It's an idiom that goes back further after which the business itself is named. Oh, okay. Well, um, I, I assume that there are other other shops and other businesses with the same name. I just was hoping this was going to turn into a comic who is comfortable with menstruation, but eh, what can you do? I mean, Brian Braddock, really? Okay, not him, just the book itself. Well, anyway, elsewhere, Cerise and Kylan, the two new additions to the book, are talking in Braddock Manor's garden at the grave of Satnine. That was the other, other, other inter- interdimensional version of Saturnine and Satire 9 and Courtney Ross, who was Kylan's beloved, and she died in his intro story. It's an interesting conversation because we have these two outsiders, one who's very much from Earth but hasn't grown up with much of it, one from an entirely different world, just sort of trying to teach each other and learn from each other how people work around these parts, and I like that pairing. But as they're having this very serious conversation, in the background, um, Psylocke surfs by riding on Captain Britain and sort of cementing the second theme of the book, which is that rich people are different from us. I just love it, though, as Psylocke is just grinning and yelling, go for the loop! (laughs) Like, these are twins. These were kids who grew up together. And yes, one turned into a sexy ninja badass, and yes, one turned into a grumpy puncher man. But, you know, they still have that within them, and it's great. I mean, admittedly, I'm an only child, but um, is is this how siblings typically interact? Like, I've seen relatively few fly through the air in this particular configuration. I guess that's true. I mean, I don't know. My brother and I aren't super close, and neither of us has historically been able to fly, so I don't have much of a frame of reference here. Kylan is going to head off. He's going to go visit his family, which he's nervous about because the last time they saw him, like a year ago, he was both eight years old and not a fantasy cat man. But after everything he's lost, you know, I get it. He's trying to find his roots. And really, isn't this what every parent wants for their kid? Not the massive tragedy, but the, like, the growing up into a badass Edgar Rice Burroughs cat warrior. Oh, right, no, um, my mom was such a Jewish mother in so many stereotypical ways. She wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or a fantasy cat warrior. Like, those were the big three. And here I am in podcasting. 
sorry. We're sorry, Rosalind. <laughs> well, Kylan leaves, but it is fancy party time at the manor. I mean, they've had a great big victory, albeit a tragic one, a Pyrrhic one, perhaps. And Betsy's in town, and Braddock Manor is full of rich stuff. So it's time for a fancy, fancy party. Man, you know what having Alan Davis back means? Amazing hair, for starts. Amazing hair, but also that that Kurt Wagner returns to his rightful place as series eye candy. Oh, he looks so good in that tuxedo. And I gotta say, Di Thomas, who's there, also looks pretty good in his in a very different way. Yeah, no, he, he, clean, he cleans up respectably. As does Amelia Witherspoon. You remember the police psychic that was apparently based on an actress and we didn't catch until a listener pointed it out? Well, she's in this incredibly regal gown and Megan's there with ginormous goddamn hair. Cerise is wearing this mostly lace bodysuit. Alistair is in these incredible plaid pants that I kind of want. Like, Alan Davis, not only does he draw fun fashion, he draws fun fashion that perfectly illustrates what's going on in the characters' minds as they made the decisions to choose clothing and get dressed. Like, there's such perfect visual show-don't-tell storytelling. Yeah, I think I've said this in previous episodes, but there are a lot of ways that I feel like Alan Davis is kind of the logical precursor to a lot of the current wave of popular comics art. We have one more guest that shows up as well. It is Alison Stewart. That's right, Alistair Stewart's twin sister. There are a lot of twins in this comic, and the head of the Weird Happenings organization. She just got back from work, but she is going to get ready to party and to tell her brother in confidence that she just got court-martialed by the Weird Happenings organization, apparently for sharing secrets with S.H.I.E.L.D. back in Excalibur heir apparent. I'm just saying, if you're going to get court-martialed, maybe have it happen from a comic that's a little better. Her name throughout the story is spelled Alice Dane, not Alice and End. Now I'm kind of worried that I've been misreading it for the entire series. I went back and checked. No, Alice and is indeed correct. Maybe we've just shifted to Earth 616.0001 or something. Oh god, it's like Earth Without J. Oh, Earth Without J. This podcast would be way different. Remember that was it was a thing from uh, Nature of the Beast. I totally remember. I'm just being a dick. Ha ha. <laughs> Her brother Alistair is understandably concerned and asks um, Alicent what she's planning to do, to which she responds, Have a shower, put on my best frock and war paint, and enjoy the party. Alas, she will not. But for now, we cut to Courtney Ross, actually interdimensional supercriminal uh, Satire 9, and Nigel Frobisher, her asshole sidekick, and who, who show up at the party, and Courtney greets Brian with the kind of writhing fingers and hair passion that is is typical of her of, of their encounters and that Davis draws really well. God, he does. He just gets all that little subtlety that so many other artists would not catch. I mean, every little bit of the body language right down to, like you said, Courtney's fingers curling in Brian's Alan Davis-y perfect hair. It's wonderful. And there's a great panel after that where Courtney just smiles super evilly at Megan and Megan scowls furiously back. Like, the facial expressions are about twice as intense as they are on people in real life. But fuck it, it's a comic book. Of course you should do that. And Megan then responds by kissing Brian even more passionately, and it's great. And it leaves everyone really delightfully disheveled, which is a detail that I appreciate a lot. A lot of comics artists have a look for characters, which includes this specific hairstyle, and their hair always returns to that or just sort of settles back to that after it's must in any way or changes in any way. And the fact that, that Davis messes with that is so so effective and it, it does so much for story for storytelling and for atmosphere and for humor 
It's great. I should note too about the hairstyle thing. Um, this is a trick that specifically you can get away with when you are an artist who pays attention to giving characters different faces and different body shapes. Because for a lot of folks who who you know came of age and came into superhero comics mostly drawing yeah attractive but fairly monolithic bodies and yeah likewise faces hair is a critical character distinguisher when you have someone like davis who draws characters with really distinct and different body shapes i mean you can tell the members of excalibur apart by their silhouettes from any angle um including the one who's a shapeshifter and with really distinct faces and facial expressions then you have not only those specific extra tools in your arsenal, but you have whole other modes of expression available to you in, in the form of things like hair and clothes that you otherwise have to keep static so the characters will be easily identifiable. Well, speaking of identifiable characters who are getting increasingly disheveled, Cerise asks, okay, what's up with this whole makeout thing? And just tries it uh, of her own volition with Nightcrawler, who quickly submits to the awesomeness that is making out with Cerise. And I love it. There's this series of panels in the background, pretty much identical with them making out, but the clock is just continuing to tick by like over long minutes. It's great. Well, Cerise sees two people in a row greet Captain Britain this way and assumes that that what she terms lip massage is simply a, a traditional enthusiastic Earth greeting. Oh, Cerise. Outside, Farron's having much less fun because he's a mopey dickbag, and he gets jumped by a shadowy guy in the background, as unfortunately does Alisand while she gets ready upstairs. Amelia, who's sort of a psychic-ish, and Psylocke, who very much is, notice, and when everybody runs upstairs, Alison's been killed. Like, she's been gruesomely murdered, just crushed and mangled. And this is a character that I personally like a lot, that, that the audience of the book is intended to like. She's dead. Yeah. So this bugs me. This rubs me the wrong way, because this is a really disposable death. This is, this is basically the death that triggers the murder mystery. And I liked Alicent, and she's got a role that not a lot of women in the Marvel Universe have. And... Yeah, this just this bugs me. This this casts a pall over an otherwise fairly excellent story. It does. I'm I'm sad about this too. I mean, we've got Val Cooper, but you know, you don't need just one badass sort of authoritative woman. Like, don't have just one example have to serve the entire Marvel universe. Also, I'm 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 wrestling with your epithet dickbag because since we're talking about Excalibur, what that takes me straight to is is the TechNet member body bag. And now I'm imagining just sort of a much more specialized version of that. I, I'm pretty sure that exists on the internet. I mean, in a world with the vajankle, all is possible, Jay. In this grand multiverse of confusing sex toys. Oh my god, I just realized there's probably TechNet porn out there. Well, if there wasn't, then there is now, thanks to quantum fetish theory. You said it, it's always existed. Follow your bliss, weird internet people? Please do. People not so much following their bliss as following chaos and violence are the characters who are not Alisand. There is a big confusing fight. The lights are out. The heroes are all getting like telekinetically picked up and twisted and guns down by women in helmets. It is amazingly colored, actually. I want to give a shout out to the colors here because the darkness makes for super impressive chaos. We the readers can tell what's going on, but it's so clear the characters can't. Well, and we can only tell some of what's going on. We don't know who the helmeted figure is, and we definitely, well, if we've been reading Excalibur, we've got a fair idea of who the telekinetic is just from the signature 
bizarre twisted forms and bits of detail that we see from around him. But eventually, Kitty manages to escape from the telekinetic, and Captain, Captain Britain, who's the only one left present and standing, is able to make his way to the attacker's... Um, and to the to the woman who's been shooting everyone, and it turns out it is Satire Nine having finally dropped her disguise. I would be sorely wounded that you should mistake me for another, my darling. If I did not understand that we are all represented across the multiverse by an infinity of doppelgangers. Indeed, I have exploited this very fact. And with her is Jamie fucking Braddock himself. That brings us to part two of this story, things that go shriek in the night, and we pick up right where we left off, or actually slightly after, because Satire 9 is addressing her all-lady soldiers, and also Nigel Frobisher, and behind her is Captain Britain in sort of a shirtless boy toy sexy gear. It's very clear he's somehow out of it, drugged, brainwashed, something along those lines. She right now, though, is concerned with catching Kitty Pride, the SKP, saying that Jamie can have everybody else to, you know, use as torture toys or whatever, but she's got special plans for Brian and special plans for Kitty. And that makes sense. She had a romantic relationship with Brian, and, well, based on that one birthday party Kitty had, there was something going on there, too. Kitty, for her part, is spying on Satire 9 by just sort of phasing her face a little of the way through a painting. She's in bad shape um, from her confrontation with Jamie, and she's also pretty heartbroken to discover that satire that Courtney is in fact satire nine. I mean, because again, they'd been really close and she'd thought of, of Courtney as a mentor and a friend and perhaps more. Perhaps. Very clearly subtextually more. Right. So the various bad guy soldiers, the Amazons as they're called, go into check with Jamie, who's twisting the surviving good guys like silly putty. Jamie's powers kind of remind me of a way more fucked up version of what waxworks from TechNet can do to people. Compounded by the fact that Jamie is convinced that he's dreaming, that none of what's going on around him is real or is really happening, and so that his actions have no consequences. It's kind of like Gwenpool, actually, but um, way scarier. Well, I think Gwenpool eventually kind of figures out that she is, in fact, in another universe. I, I think Gwenpool is significantly saner. That's probably for the best, and uh, not nearly as powerful. So, as all this is going on, Brian's body may be paralyzed and drugged, but his brain, he's still in there somewhere, and Psylocke, using both telepathy and twin powers, activate, uh, goes in there to check in with him, saying, all right, Here's the deal with the history of these various characters. Let's recap for each other and for the reader as if we're Lucas Bishop. Okay, so Satire 9 is Courtney Ross's equivalent from Earth 794, on she was, where she was a sadistic fascist dictator who was imprisoned by Captain UK, who was assigned to that Earth after its equivalent of Captain Britain got uh, killed. And then she escaped thanks to a UFO hunter who wandered into her universe through a widget portal. And Satire 9 has been posing as Courtney Ross for literally 50 issues. She she killed Courtney and took her place in issue number 5, and the previous issue that we just covered, number 55, was where she finally revealed herself. And as far as we can tell, for a good deal of those 50 issues, Chris Claremont completely forgot that it was supposed to be someone else posing as Courtney. It was very, very strange. But... As for Jamie, well, he was a rich playboy who was also kind of an evil fuck, and he then went pretty crazy himself when he was tortured by Dr. Crocodile, I love that name, 
and then did some various mischief, by which I mean terrible things, and was recruited by Satire 9 for his reality-warping mutant powers. Right. Jamie is a nigh-omnipotent reality-warper, at least within a limited radius of his physical presence. So, between having Jamie on her side, having Courtney Ross's banking job to get her lots of money to bankroll her operations, and having the crime lord Vixen's armies who have converted to her because she turned Vixen into a literal fox, Satire 9 is really prepped to do basically whatever. Well, she didn't just turn Vixen into a fox. She turned Vixen into a fox and then gave Nigel Frobisher um, the ability to shapeshift into Vixen so he could continue to control her criminal empire. We meant, of course, that it was Jamie Braddock who turned Vixen into a fox and who made Nigel able to transform into Vixen. We were just testing you. Speaking of Nigel, he takes this opportunity to try to murder Brian in his sleep and then use mind control gas on Satire 9, and Satire 9 is all tricksy and then just dabs him and Nigel's dead, and I, I, don't, I don't feel bad about that. Yeah, I know she's super evil, and I know that we're supposed to be generally philosophically against murder, but... This was really a tremendously satisfying moment for me. Right? Well, Shadowcat sneaks into this whole shebang, and she does take out a couple of Satire 9's Amazon guards, dresses as one, ninjas her way through a fight with Vixen's conveniently numbered henchmen, but then she's just taken out by Jamie because he can limitedly control reality. There is, however, an upside to Shadowcat's distraction. The drugs have worn off Megan. She's no longer out of it, and she was only staying twisted and distorted because, as a metamorphic empath, she takes the form that the people around her want her to have. She reflects their desires, and that's what Jamie wanted. Now that she's back in control, she clicks into her her true form, her elfin energy form, where she is immune to his power, and tells him, You think me stupid because I cannot read or understand clever words. But life is bigger than words. Words are just small noises that hide the truth. I see more than you could know. And then she beats the hell out of him. There's a great three-panel sequence of their fight, and in the background is sort of the same background across all three panels, with Excalibur going back to normal across panel breaks. It's really cleverly done. We'll put that in the as-mentioned. Brian, for his part, finally breaks free when Satire 9 commands him to kill Megan, and... Everyone joins into the the fracas. Satire 9 does her best to hypnotize Kitty through their old bond. However, this is fucking Kitty Pride, and she says, In your dreams, friend. I'm insulted you'd think I'd be so easy to control. And she takes Satire 9 out with a tranquilizer dart. Now, Jamie is about to stab Megan with a soon-to-be-knife banana, but Psylocke intervenes with a pop culture quote I cannot even be mad at. That is not a knife. This is a knife. The focused totality of my telepathic abilities. And it'll cut a lot deeper than your banana. I think that's the most Excalibur line we've seen in quite a while. Yeah, the the panels of of Jamie menacingly brandishing a banana are kind of good, too. They're pretty good, yeah. And Psylocke psychic knifes Jamie right in the head. So the assorted henchmen are like, whoa, we did not sign up for this. We are getting the hell out of here with our bosses. And indeed, they bugger off. Captain Britain almost manages to get on their escaping craft, but he can't quite make it. And I I was going to say I'm a, a 
going to go back a step and say that clearly Psylocke has made the most out of the the self-defense classes, the very specialized self-defense classes we, we saw in, in early Monty Python, and she mm. knows how to defend herself against a man armed with a banana. She does. And so that's the story, and that's the end of a lot of these plot threads, because Alan Davis's run isn't over yet, but it's kind of getting close to the end. According to UncannyXmen.net, he was actually going to have, in a future plot line, Merlin mind swap satire nine and megan as revenge for merlin's own defeat by excalibur but we never got to see that davis left the book before that i'm kind of okay with that yeah i feel like claremont basically has the uh body swap mind control market pretty much cornered at this point um we close with alison's funeral where nick fury skulks up at the very end to hand alistair proof that she was in fact innocent and I don't know that this actually goes anywhere. I may be misremembering, but I think this is kind of the end of that plot thread, which is sad. Like, I mean, if Allison was going to die, I'd rather at least have her have a good wrap-up, but I don't think she get, gets one. I hope I'm wrong. No, I remember it the same way you do. And again, it may be that we're both misremembering this, and I very much hope that we are. That's that story, and we now have a couple major plot threads from the Claremont Davis era wrapped up. So let's go to an old X-Factor plot. So this is Excalibur 57 and 58, uh, stories called For Whom the Bell Trolls and Troll Call. These are plotted by Alan Davis, scripted by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Madurara, who is doing his very best Alan Davis, complete with extra swoopy hair, and inked by Ro- Joe Rubenstein and Hector um, Colazzo. And we got to talk about Joe Madurara for a second. I think we've covered at least one story he did in a previous special or something. He's going to be on Kenny X-Men's longtime penciler a little over a year from this. But this, for me, is the first time his style has really looked like him. His characters, they're very anime-inspired, but they almost look like action figures, and I love it. Do you think this looks like him? To me, this looks like him doing his best to do a really good both Alan Davis and Art Adams, who are the two artists who he's very clearly working heavily off of here and should be for this story to make sense in this context like we can we can see bits of his style poke through but right now what's what really impresses me is how well he manages to fuse that old art adams um you know the original art adams story that this is this is pulling off of into the current house style of excalibur totally yeah the returning characters like you could almost think it was just pages out of that original story so speaking of x factor This is building on a story that was originally told in X-Factor number 41 and 42, which we covered in episode 118, Extrude the Grappling Arms. Back in those issues, we met a kid named Thomas Jones, who had the power to transmute matter into any substance whose molecular construction he understood. His codename, which I don't believe ever came up in that story, was Alchemy, and he was actually a fan-created character who won a contest. In the story, he was kidnapped by old-school mythological trolls, not the Reddit kind, who wanted to turn a bunch of stuff into gold, and they were going to then use that gold, or the increased amount of gold in the world, to destabilize the world's economy and take over, which is a plot that I still very much enjoy. Oh, likewise, so much. Now, those trolls were thwarted, and Tom turned several of them into first gold and then lead, and left them around London as statues uh, before fucking off to university, where he studied chemistry. Now, this story is actually a secondhand flashback. Right. It's eventually going to be revealed that everything we're seeing here is a story being told by Jester of the Crazy Gang to a very enthusiastic audience. So 
while we often get the quote unquote real version, we also get scenes with with Jester's speculatory narration, which is pretty great. Given that, it's up to you how canonical you want to consider the events here. They're not going to tie closely into really much else. Alchemy himself is going to reappear briefly in X-Men Legacy and then play a very significant role in Death of X, um, after which he will die. So, yeah, he's, he's, he's not going to be a major player in the universe, and I'm not sure the trolls really ever come back after this. And the folks to whom Jester is telling this maybe apocryphal story, um, as, as revealed at the end of the arc, he is, he is, he is, what, what he is t- telling them is the story of how most of England's troll population was rehomed to the crazy gang's weird little Alice in Wonderland utopia, where they are currently all living happily. So charming. Well, as for the contents of this flashback and the immortal words of the thing from that one issue of Marvel Team-Up, what happened? Well, to start with, Excalibur, unsuccessfully combing the sewers for the escaped Satire 9, was distracted by a nearby scream, and they rushed to the rescue, but found only two policemen both turned to gold. Cerise was able to use her alien tech to find out that... They're alive! My sensors indicate the presence of subepidermal, fully operational internal organs and active cardiorespiratory functions. These are human beings transmuted into gold. I mean, yeah, that science pretty much checks out. It absolutely does not. Megan goes into her awesome wolf form, and I love how Joe Matarera draws her in that, to track the perpetrators, but finds, whoa, a bunch of trolls, some of whom we recognize from old X-Factor. So who are our returning characters here? Well, we have Fum, who's a Sasquatch. Hey, native to the Pacific Northwest. We've got Faye, and Faye is a shapeshifter who talks pretty much only in quotations and is currently a Tyrannosaurus. <laughs> I love Faye. And then we have Fow? Foe? Hard to say. But he's a gargoyle. I assume Foe. Probably, yeah, with the whole rhymey thing. After that, we've got Fop, Flop, and Flem, which uh, I feel like those names are phoning it in a bit, but I'll take it. And those three new fellows are presumably standing in for Fi and Fee, who were the trolls turned to gold and then led at the end of the X-Factor story. Anyway, there's a great big fight, and uh, I love Jester's take on what the characters are probably saying. Granted, I wasn't there, but I can imagine what they said. Cerise might have said, Ooh, you make me so mad! Yipes! cried the creature. Feel the sting of my solar axe, said she. Nyuck, 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 Nightcrawler might have taunted. You are ugly, and your mother dresses you funny. Remember, I'm paraphrasing here. If trolls had mothers, I'd be offended, retorted one, before striking the other. A little off the top, would query Megan if she possessed even the most rudimentary sense of humor. Whatever was said to whomever, the point is, Excalibur was doing quite well, thank you. I love that so much, but Excalibur doesn't do well for long because suddenly a hand from off-panel, alchemy of course, uh, touches Captain Britain and turns him to freaking gold. Whoops. Alchemy also trips while he's fleeing and grabs at Megan, who's able to temporarily delay the transformation using her shape-shifting, but eventually she succumbs to that as well. Now, Nightcrawler doesn't really know what's going on, but he is now the official leader of Excalibur. He didn't read those issues of X-Factor, so he figures that trolls plus lowercase alchemy must mean magic and send Cerise to go get the resident magic jerk, Farron. The rest of Excalibur heads after the trolls, but they instead collide with none other than 
the X-Men Blue Team. Which is awesome! And Blue Team is here because, as it turns out, Tom is not working with the trolls voluntarily. The trolls are holding his mother hostage, and he's already called X-Factor for help, but got the Xavier School answering machine. Specifically, he called the original X-Factor, the original five X-Men, and that's, well, I would say that's why Blue Team is here, but Gold Team has even more original five X-Men, so, eh, whatever. But I assume that what Gold Team doesn't have is the one of the original five to whom the voicemail gets forwarded. Or the characters who you can sell a lot more books with if they're on the cover. But this is great. Okay, two things. Thing one, Alchemy's mom being menaced by the troll associates in order to force Alchemy to do their bidding. Yeah, that was exactly what happened the first time around. I can just imagine Alchemy's mom getting captured and being like, this again? Okay, we know how this goes. How do we do this? Um, later on when he does die in Death of Axe, at least he'll break that pattern. But as far as the X-Men and Excalibur seeing each other... Remember, they've known each other are alive for a long time, but in a lot of cases, this is the first time they've seen each other in fucking ages, and it is so charming. Shadowcat is so overjoyed to see Logan and Rogue again. Um, yeah, no, I think the only crossover there's been is Psylocke coming in and visiting Brian. Exactly. Uh, Kitty actually hasn't seen uh, Rogue, and I think most of the X-Men, since the old Fantastic Four vs. X-Men miniseries from 1980-fucking-7. Wow, so it has been, at least in our universe, a good, what, four or five years at this point. Right. Well, having joyfully reunited, and again, this just warms my heart so much, and Joe Matarera really sells, like, the glee and joy. They're not John Bogdanov hugs, but they're good hugs. The combined team track the trolls to their hideout, you know, except for Captain Britain and Megan, who are gold, and Cerise, who left. And Gambit blasts down the door with a charged playing card, just as Wolverine realizes that the door has in fact been transmuted into plastique. But that's not the worst mistake Gambit makes. Okay, so this moment, this moment is the primary source of my unified Gambit dialect theory, upon which I will expound momentarily. But first, um, Gambit, just in, in, in the course of conversation, calls Cyclops... Monde Orb Uno. Wait, what? That's not French, and it's... I don't think it's a combination of French and English, either. That's not anything, Remy. So my theory here is that Gambit only pretends to know French. Oh, kind of like Phantom X. Like Phantom X, or, or like um, the, the Kevin Klein character in Fierce Creatures. This scans 100%, actually. Yeah, and he just he's he's just completely faking it. Like the accent is something that he just sort of made up. Right. Well, Gambit does not die for his crimes as perhaps in a just world he would, nor to any of the X-Men because even though the door blows up, they're pretty much okay. The thing is, I like Gambit more if he just made up the accent to fuck with people. Yeah, perhaps a good point. But, but anyway, um, everyone's pretty much alright. They all wake up uh, wrapped in mystical chains that also neutralize their powers, and there's also a bunch of new trolls around, um, one of whom appears to be the elder spokesperson of the bunch. This is Felix, and Felix lisps for reasons that, as far as I can tell, are entirely one-off gags that sit really oddly with the rest of the issue, and which I could definitely do without. Yeah. But the X-Men, they try to break free. Cyclops tries to use his boot radio because apparently he's a character from Get Smart. Wolverine tries to, you know, cut stuff until Alchemy transmutes Wolverine's claws into rubber. Whoa, 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 wait a second. Wouldn't that turn 
the rest of the adamantium and his skeleton to rubber as well, because alchemy only has to touch one place on a person's skin to turn their entire skin into gold. I mean, it's probably for the best that that doesn't happen because then we'd have two storylines in a row where everyone gets turned into like weird, gelatinous, boneless, exaggerated creatures. And Jamie Braddock did plenty of that last story. Thank you very much. With the X-Men's escape attempts foiled, Kurt then, at least ostensibly, turns traitor. Kind foe, I have always been an outcast, feared and reviled for my elfin appearance. I owe no allegiance to the X-Men. Allies who never treated me as more than a mascot. Now, we know Kurt isn't really a traitor. And in fact, the X-Men and Excalibur know that Kurt isn't really a traitor, too, except for Jubilee and Gambit, who are really uncharitable about it, never having met him before. But I like that, especially with last issue, um, where Cyclops had just been really dismissive of Kurt, that is the first part of this alchemy storyline, and with Kurt being really insecure about being a leader anyway, and seeing his old teammates, and wondering if those insecurities are really totally true, since Cyclops is in his worst 90s cartoon Boy Scout mode, like, you can almost kind of buy it, and for me that's what makes the ruse a little more effective to the reader. Yeah, but it's Kurt. Well, yeah, but it's Kurt. I'm just saying it's less unbelievable than it might otherwise be. Yeah, but it's Kurt. Well, anyway, uh, Foe, hearing all of this, says, hey, you know what? Screw it. We have an elf on our team. Let's declare total war on humanity and have all of the fairy creatures and trolls who are in this sewer tunnel because sewers are very spacious in the Marvel Universe just freaking attack mankind. Sewers are actually pretty spacious in the real world, too. I've never been in a sewer. I have, actually, because, so when we were in Brussels, we went to this, they have, they have a sewer museum, which is very clearly the kind of museum that mostly just gets kids on field trips, because it's like, it's like the only museum in the city that doesn't have any English text, everything's just in French and Flemish, and, and, and we, between the two of us, know enough French and German to sort of limp through, but it's really fascinating, and it involves a lot of really interesting history, but also a brief jaunt through an actual um, fairly extended sewer passage, which is really gross, but interesting. I mean, gross but interesting, I'm okay with that. I can handle that. If I'm ever in Belgium, I don't know if I will be, but if I ever am, I'll go there. Also, their mascot is a really cute cartoon rat. I like that. That's good, too. Meanwhile, Cerise, who's been sent off to get Farron, comes back with Farron, who, alas, is unable to transform anyone back from gold because he actually failed basic alchemy. God damn it, Farron. Is moping all you're good at? Yes. Yes. Well, I guess, uh, hovering. He's good at hovering. Uh, they said it was a weather balloon. Nightcrawler knocks Cerise the fuck out and teleports away with Farron, and it looks to the trolls like Farron blew himself and Nightcrawler both up, and they're both dead. Right, because the trolls haven't seen Nightcrawler teleport before. So the Cerise thing I kind of want to talk about, because this is a bit where I actually assumed that he had faked knocking her out, because he said something along the lines of, it would be better if you just, you know, fell down and, sh and shut up. And what, sound what read to me very much like code for, hey, play along, play dead. But then later on, he actually apologizes to her for knocking her out, so maybe he actually did. I don't know. I don't know that Cerise is really capable of that kind of subtlety when talking to Earth people. She's really not got much of a handle on any of their culture, although she's getting better at lip massage. So I can understand Kurt being like, eh, you know, uh, forgiveness, permission, this is for the greater good. 
Kurt heads back with Farron to the the imprisoned X-Men and Excalibur. During the break in which time Kitty and Cyclops have a brief, he's not actually betraying us, right? No, I have no idea what he's up to, but I trust him. High five, except they don't because they're chained up. So nobody's surprised when Kurt shows back up with Farron, and Farron, it turns out, is actually good for something. He manages to get them out of their mystical bonds. In the ensuing brawl, the X-Men quickly gain the upper hand until Psylocke and Felix team up to put an end to the hostilities. And all the trolls who are helping to attack the various mutants just get turned into gold one by one by alchemy uh, after Kurt has rescued alchemy's mom. For now, until the inevitable next time. As it turns out, most of the trolls really didn't want a war. That was mostly... um, mostly foes thing, and they were just sort of going along because they're really tired of having to live in the sewers and hide all the time, understandably. So Nightcrawler and Cerise make out for a while and then propose an alternate solution, which is that the remaining peaceful trolls get to retire happily to the crazy gang's wonderland to hear the story of their very own arrival. And that takes us back to the beginning, and now we're just going to loop through that description infinity times. This episode is going to be a, a lot of megabytes. Possibly some, somewhat like those trolls, you've got questions. Someone on Twitter who claims to be Ben Wyatt, but I have my suspicions, asks, Providing it's eventually released, what are you most excited and worried about from the new Mutants movie? Oh man, so many things on both sides. Anyone who's listened to much of this podcast knows that New Mutants is near and dear to my heart. It's my favorite X-book of all time. I love those kids. I love those stories. And I don't know about this movie. I mean, okay, part of me is just inherently excited to see some of my favorite everythings on screen. Like 10-year-old Miles is just exploding with delight every time he thinks about the film. But still, we have a more diverse cast than usual for a superhero movie, and that's freaking great. Also, soap opera glory, I would love to see all of the characters having, like, rivalries and friendships and love and, like, petulance against each other and pettiness and cooperation. And I don't know, that's something we haven't seen much of in an X-Men movie. The X-Men movies have just been so action-oriented and so metaphory that we haven't gotten that human interaction enough. And I think New Mutants could have it. Yeah, what I really want to see from this are complex and well-developed interpersonal dynamics what i'm worried about is that it's going to go too far in the direction of just being a supernatural horror movie well right um new mutants it was always kind of a mix of john's hughes and carpenter in the comic but i've been hearing rumors and i don't know if these are true they could just be rumors that after the response to the horrorish trailer was so positive that the movie was actually recut and had a bunch of reshoots done to make it more of a horror movie and less of like a teen soap opera movie oh damn it And don't get me wrong, like an X-Men horror movie could be cool. I have nothing against it. It's just I want New Mutants to feel like New Mutants. Yeah, yeah, no, likewise, very much. Also, I mean, the movie's been delayed, like, a lot, a lot of times. And um, that's, I'm not necessarily saying that's inherently a bad sign. Like, maybe they're going to do a bunch of reshoots and fix all the problems. But it's seldom a good sign. I, I I just hope it doesn't suck. It doesn't even have to be amazing. I just don't want it to suck, Jay. Wow. Well, that was depressing. It could be awesome. I mean, it could be like the greatest X-Men movie ever, and I really hope it is. I've read interviews with the director, and he really knows his new mutants. He seems to get it, so fingers so crossed. At this point, my position is basically high hopes and zero expectations. That's a good philosophy, I think. It's hard for me to do. I have a hard time, like, disinvesting. Applejacks1552 asks on Tumblr, 
I was wondering if you know when it became commonplace for the cover artist to be separate from the interior artist and what the reasoning is for using a different cover artist. So the main purpose of comics covers commercially is to attract readers and sell books. You can do this a number of different ways. And as there was more and more focus on artists and getting star artists, a lot of the time you can't necessarily get the star artist you want to do an entire series, but you might be able to get them for the covers because yeah, that's, that's one page as opposed to 22 or 24. Now, usually still, or at least a lot of the time, interior artists also do covers. That's, that's, there are, there are often variants they don't do, and there's some variation in that, but that's still something you see pretty consistently. Um, and again, there are multiple reasons for that. One of them is that covers traditionally pay significantly more than interior pages. So having having a cover gig in addition to an, 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 an um, a story gig can can basically function as a, an effective bonus. The other reasons for for having different cover artists again scheduling is a big one um, prominence. Specialization. At this point, with the option of that, there are artists who are primarily interior artists and artists who are primarily cover artists. For example, I, Kevin Wada jumps to mind. He he is a cover guy. That is his thing. That is what he does. He is prim- He primarily does does illustration and pinup rather than sequentials. And so, in comics, that's the place where you can put him. Now, speaking as an editor, what you're generally looking for in terms of a cover artist. No matter who it is, whether it's your interior artist or not, you're looking for someone who's who's you know who's who's technically good at covers, who's who's got the aesthetic and the breakdown and the, you know, the sense of layout that you need to do a st- strong cover art, um, but also whose style is consistent enough with the interior art that readers aren't going to p- pick the book up based on the cover and then be immediately confused and disappointed. Which, which I think pretty much covers it. So as far as, as far as trends, that's something that varies over time. It's definitely, you see more cover artists when in, in ages of variance and also in, in eras where scheduling around books and the quality of the art generally, you know, the bar has been going up and up and up in terms of like things like the level of detail expected. So yeah, so it, 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 it can come from a lot of different directions and there isn't really a single standard practice right now. So we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from a variety of fictional characters and concepts, such as the angry Claremontian narrator. You tried so hard to make sense of chaos, Rachel. To wrest some semblance of meaning from the threads of destiny Jonathan Elliot had spun and left to hang and tangle into a Gordian knot of causality. But little did you know that you yourself were caught in Jonathan's designs, woven inextricably into the same tapestry you were so desperate to unfurl. And the mic now goes to Sexy Megan. Brian? Brian? Oh, Pooh. He's so distracted by that... that hussy, that banker, that Courtney. Well, I'll show him. Adam Hunter, let's shapeshift into especially sexy forms and make out all over Brian's weird basement computer. Can you get all sparkly and elfin too? Oh good, that'll show him, that ungrateful man. Wesley Ryan, grab that Centurion helmet from next to my circular bed. You know, the one from Excalibur Special Edition, The Sword is Drawn? You wear that, I'll wear my weird pajamas from that Demon Druid issue, and Brian won't know what to make of it. He won't, right? Brian? 
And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be joined by Dr. Andrea Letamendi of the Arkham Sessions. As X-Factor gets some much-needed therapy. (laughs) 